I want to get into God's Word, and, and before I really can uh, tell you where we're going, I should say we are going to step out of Luke's Gospel again this morning. Um, obviously, you know, I'm passionate about teaching through books of the Bible, verse by verse, whatever. Um, but then I, I also have mentioned that there are times where I have no problem stepping out of the series that's ongoing now for years and just uh, maybe diving into something else if I feel God's leading me. And sometimes it may be an issue that I feel might be important for the church to focus on. Other times it's just honestly... I was doing personal devotions and something opened up for me and I just was like, wow, I would like to share that. I think, I hope it might be encouraging. That's really what kind of happened uh, for me this morning. If you recall, if you've been with us uh, maybe a few months ago now, I did something similar when I was in Genesis 12 and I just shared a, a sermon that came forward from that. Well, it happens now that in my reading the Bible and things, I'm in Genesis 26 and um Something came up to my attention there that I wanted to bring to you guys here this morning. Um, so if you could open up your Bibles, Genesis 26, 1 through 5 is where we're going to be. You need a Bible, raise your hand, we'll get one to you. I would really like you to be able to see um, what I'm doing here this morning. Keep me honest. So please, uh, get a Bible in front of you. Genesis, pretty easy to get there. You just open up to like the first page and you should be all right. Uh, but then chapter 26, verses 1 through 5 is where we'll be. Just to kind of catch you up to speed, Abraham uh, has recently died and his miracle son Isaac has now taken up the mantle as patriarch for the, for the budding people of God. Let me read this, pray, and, and then we'll dive in. Genesis 26, beginning in verse 1. Now there was a famine in the land, besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerar, to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you... And to your offspring I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and will give to your offspring all these lands, and in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because Abraham obeyed my voice, and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. Would you pray with me? God, it's my prayer this morning that even as we peer into the Old Testament, the work of our Savior your Son, Jesus Christ, would shine all the brighter. God, I pray that we would see that the blessing we so long for, the salvation we so need, comes to us not on the basis of our works, but on the basis of His. God, I pray for the depressed in this room. I pray for those struggling with condemnation, those feeling like their lives have taken a turn. and They're in a labyrinth and they don't know how to get out. I pray for those who feel just sick with shame. As you feel stuck, hopeless. God, I pray today that as we contemplate the complete, the finished work of Jesus Christ on our behalf, that some of those things will just lift. 
that we'll see our destiny is secure, our standing is secure, our blessing is sure, your love for us unending, and we find joy even in this place here this morning. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Um, okay, so with regard to these uh, five verses, really, just to kind of lay it out for you up front, I'm um, going to organize my thoughts under really three headings here. One, you can see it on your handout. One would just be pressing questions. Two, surprising connections. And then three, practical implications. Um, I'm going to try to set the stage here for where we're going um, by asking some of these questions, these things that initially pressed in on me. As I read these verses um, one morning a couple weeks ago, um, there were some things that just captivated me. Uh, and if I'm honest, even perhaps troubled me. Uh, and I want to show you uh, what those things were. In particular, uh, it comes out there in verse 5, but it's this idea that Isaac is receiving God's blessing because of Abraham's obedience. Isaac gets blessed because of Abraham's obedience. Let me show you this beginning in verse 3. Let's just read it one more time so I can make it clear. Sojourn in this land, God says, and I will be with you. He's talking to Isaac again. I will be with you and will bless you for to you and to your offspring. I will give you all these lands and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham, your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Why? Why, God? Why would this be coming to Isaac? Because, verse 5, Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. I don't know if you um, have ever been kind of reading through the scriptures. This happens for me. Goodness gracious, I went to seminary. It happens for me on an almost daily basis. But you read through the scriptures and you get to a verse or a text here or there and you go, What in the world does that mean? Now, how does that fit with the system of doctrine that I've been taught my whole life? Or how how am I supposed to understand this piece here? It doesn't make much sense. When I came to this verse, verse 5 in particular, I began to wonder, how does this fit into the Christian scheme of salvation and blessing? This idea of Abraham's obedience. Because Abraham obeyed the law and my statutes and my commands, I will bless you, Isaac. And I, go, I thought God's blessing and being in the right with him and getting his favor was by means of grace and not my own works or anyone else's works, but Jesus. And now we're talking about Abraham's works and blessing coming to Isaac because of that. And I began wanting to try to piece it together for myself and now for you. The questions that kind of emerge are things like, well, am I somehow saved by Abraham's works? Have we got it wrong? This idea that it's Jesus's righteousness. Is is it somehow ultimately something that began with Abraham's righteousness? Or Do I somehow, is this text saying that somehow I need to, uh, like Abraham, if I want God's blessing, I need to obey God's commands and statutes and laws in a similar manner. Is that what's going on? That's how I get God's favor. Or perhaps if we were to really blow this out, we're just to say, maybe I need a really holy ancestor. Maybe Grandma Sally's faith and her walk with God because she spent years of her life on her knees praying and I know she had God's favor, I will certainly have it too. I'm in her lineage. You see how we can, I mean, we could spin off all manner of heresy at this point coming from some of these texts. How is it that a person gets right with God? 
How do we fit this within Christian understanding of things? Really running underneath all of these various questions I've been asking are two uh, primary concerns, two of the most important questions of all. One is what I've been reiterating here, and that is simply how does a person get saved? That's something that every person in this room, whether they realize it or not, uh, should uh, immediately be concerned with. If God is who he says he is, and I am who he says I am, namely sinner, and I'm deserving of judgment because of that, and he is holy and pure and righteous, how do I get saved? That's the most pressing concern on your agenda. I don't care whatever else your boss may say or uh, you may think. How does a person get saved? How do we get in the right with God? That's question number one running underneath all of this. But then the second fundamental question, I think, is, is this. Do the scriptures actually have a unified answer to that question? Meaning, is there a comprehensive, is, 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 there, is there one kind of way that God is going to direct us to be saved? Or is he in fact kind of scrambling about throughout the old and the new, kind of throwing different ideas into the mix, finally you know, came up with something that worked in Jesus, but we're just witnessing some of his fumbles back in the Old Testament. Is this just a different way of being saved? Does the Bible actually have one way that it presents? Or do we kind of, in our systematic presentation of things, clean up a lot of God's messes and make it seem simpler than it really is? So how do I get saved? And does the Bible actually contain one unified, coherent answer? Those are the two underlying questions I think, uh, with this text, and and that's what I wanted to try to ultimately answer for us here this morning. The way that I can begin um, towards an answer really is uh, by making what I'm calling here these surprising connections. And these connections really are going to take us on a journey through the scriptures towards, hopefully now, no surprise, Christ. But let's get to work. Um, It's in this section in particular that we're going to be doing some some serious biblical uh, calisthenics, you might say. And I'm not necessarily going to linger too long uh, because I want to make sure I get to some of those practical implications. But I want you to stay with me and I want you to see um, the wonder in all of this. So first connection that I want to make is from our text in Genesis 26 back to Genesis 22. This is the first step in our journey forward is actually to go backward. In our text, God references an oath, if you noticed it, an oath that he made to Abraham because of Abraham's obedience. Well, that oath uh, is uh, specifically referenced in Genesis 22, 16 to 18. Now, what I'm going to want you to do is turn a couple chapters back and stay in Genesis 22 with me for a little bit. But the oath that God gives is in light of Abraham's obedience in this uh, context in particular, Genesis 22. And I wonder if you remember what is actually going on in this chapter. Perhaps some of you new to the Bible. Um, uh, This will be first time. Some of us familiar. We've heard the story and even just reading this oath where God references um, what Abraham just did will remind us. Let me read Genesis 22, 16 to 18 for you. Here's God's oath to Abraham. By myself, I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So God makes an oath with Abraham here because of his obedience. And what was that obedience in particular? Did you catch it? 
because you've not withheld your son, your only son. So now all of a sudden, those of us familiar with our Bibles, and perhaps even those of us not all that familiar, are recalling now the story where Abraham is, is, is asked by God to offer up his son Isaac. This well-known biblical story, often misunderstood story. But this is the context of Abraham's obedience and the oath that then comes to Isaac as blessing. So I want to sit here in this and think with you about it for a moment. Um, If you're familiar with the story, certainly we can take it on its own terms. And uh, perhaps you've heard uh, shared from the pulpit um, various sermons and things regarding this uh, story in Genesis 22 and Abraham and his inspiring faith and his submission to the Lord that he would offer up the promised son Isaac to God and be willing even to slaughter him uh, in obedience to God. And we can kind of look at that, be inspired by that, perhaps you go, wow, I mean, my goodness, yeah, God's coming after the idols in my life and all these things. But then if you really stop and think about it, Aren't we also sometimes a bit troubled by this story? Even a bit scandalized by it? For goodness sake, I'm up here talking about real options and how we don't like child killing and we want to stand in the gap for the the children of, of, of people. And yet here now we're looking at a story where God says, actually, I want you to kill your child. Is that troubling? Is that an implication? Can I pull back and go, wait, how am I supposed to grab a hold of that in my personal devotions? Like, is God ever going to come at me with this question? Is that reasonable to expect? There's a little bit of a scandal going on in this text. It seems troubling to me. And here is the start, really, of our, of our um, confusion when it comes to biblical interpretation. Um, when we isolate, when we remove and look at just a single portion of the scripture, kind of dive in deep. Now, I love diving in deep, don't get me wrong. But when we kind of go blind to the rest of the story, we dive in, we, ha- we can kind of be uh, laying ourselves open to misunderstanding, misinterpretation, and confusion. And so with this one, when we put it under the microscope, all of a sudden we go, wait a minute. Killing your son, that doesn't sound like a loving father. I don't understand what God is asking. Could God ever, we get confused. But when all of a sudden we pan the camera out and we let this story be seen in light of the overarching story in the scriptures, we come to see something completely different. What we actually come to realize is that what God is doing here with Abraham is in fact picturing and preparing us for what he will do with his own son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. There's something so much more than be inspired by Abraham going on here. There's actually be saved by Jesus. <laughs> That's on the agenda as, as God is in fact uh, bringing this text to our attention. Not just let's have a faith like Abraham. But let's get saved by the one Abraham and Isaac ultimately point us to. Namely, Jesus. Now, I want to show you, make a case for what I just said in more detail uh, before I kind of take us verse by verse through Genesis 22 and make some of these connections um, for you. Let me at least give a brief sense of the background if you're new to the Bible. So uh, God has looked down really at a depraved and fallen world. And he has, in grace, uh, set his affections on Abraham and says, listen, I know you're old. I know your wife is barren, but you're going to have a child by way of my power, my strength. I am God. I can do it. Don't worry. He makes good on his promise. Isaac is born. And very quickly, as we would understand, Isaac becomes the apple of his father Abraham's eye. But then Genesis 22, God comes in to test Abraham and he says, listen, now take your son and I want you to offer him as a burnt offering to me. That gets us into Genesis 22. Now, 
Let me show you some of these details and how I think they, they picture for us and prepare us to see Jesus and ultimately Jesus' obedience and the blessing that comes to us from him. For one thing, the story begins uh, with uh, really what we would see as um, the unrestrained surrender of Abraham. Okay, so if you notice, I'm just going to take us one verse at a time. This is verse 1, Genesis 22. After these things, God tested Abraham, said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. So unrestrained surrender. Is that an inspiration, an example for us? Yes, but immediately what flitted into my mind is also uh, ultimately a picture of Christ. I don't know if you remember um, uh, near the end of Jesus' life when he's contemplating uh, the impending death on the cross. Uh, he says this in prayer to his father. He says, this is John 12, 27, 28. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say, Father? Save me from this hour. Before this purpose, he says, I have come to this hour. In other words, what should I say? Get me out of this. I'm going to run away. I'm going to pull a Jonah. I'm headed in this direction. No, I've come to this hour for this purpose. Here I am. Let's go. We see that sort of idea uh, with Abraham, even at the beginning. Abraham, here I am. And he'll say it a couple times more as he goes on through uh, this text. Here I am. Here I am. Unrestrained surrender. We already start to see a little bit of Christ in this, but you'll see so much more than Genesis 12, or I'm sorry, Genesis 22, verse 2. Now, all of a sudden, the connections get even clearer. Uh, let me read this. He said, this is God speaking to Abraham, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Here immediately what we recall, I think, if we're again reading this story in light of the larger story of the scriptures, is, okay, wait a minute, I know, an only, I know of another only son, I know of another only beloved son, I know of another only beloved son who is offered, Right? All of a sudden we're thinking of texts like Luke 3.22 when God uh, speaks over his son at his baptism and says, You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. Or we're thinking of probably the most famous verse in all the Bible, John 3.16, where we read, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. Loved. Only son given up as an offering. Then in Genesis 22, verse 3, I told you I was going to move fast. It's because I have nine of these just in this text alone. And then I'm going to take you somewhere else. So put on your seatbelts, please. Um, then in Genesis 22, verse 3, we read that Abraham saddled his donkey and journeyed towards the destination appointed by the Lord. Now, this might be a stretch one taken in isolation, but on the whole, uh, you might uh, grant this to me. Um, what we will find, and I will make the case for this very clearly at the end here, is that where uh, Abraham is going actually later becomes Mount Zion. Okay, and so as Abraham journeys on this donkey towards what later becomes Mount Zion, I could perhaps see an allusion here to Zechariah 9 9, where speaking of Jesus, the text reads this. It's like a classic kind of um, uh, Easter or uh, a text. It says this Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humbled and mounted on a donkey. So they're journeying towards this place where the son will be offered. And Jesus later will grab a hold of that. He'll grab a hold of that and say, here I come. Here I come to Mount Zion to be offered, humbled and mounted on a donkey. Then Genesis 22, verse 4, we read that on the third day, 
As he's journeying towards this place that God was sending him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Now, scholars, commentators have looked at this reference to the third day here and said, man, this is probably where the whole significance of the third day even begins. Like every detail in the Bible matters. I'm just trying to show you that Bible study matters. And when you press in, whole worlds open up. Well, here we're talking about a third day and scholars are looking at it going, and this is probably where the significance of the third day begins. And of course, we know of the most significant third day of all, right? Namely, the third day upon which Jesus, after being dead, rose. Again, never to die. For our justification. Forgiveness of our sins. Matthew 16, 21. 1 Corinthians 15, 4. Then in Genesis 22, verse 5, uh, quite intriguingly, Abraham says to the young men who have journeyed with him, and Isaac to this point, he says, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Now hear that. And pause for a moment. Abraham says to these other guys that have been kind of traveling with them on their way to, um, to this mountain that God had designated. He says to these, these guys, hey, you stay here. Isaac and I are going to go over there, but we will come back. We, the boy and I, will come back. Now, Abraham clearly knows God has asked him to offer up his son on that mountain. So here's my question. Is Abraham right now trying to cover up his intentions? He knows that these dudes are going to try to stop him if he tells them what he's really after. He's kind of speaking out the side of his mouth here, or is there something more going on? Well, the author of Hebrews, I think this is probably where we uh, would get this, where he would get this from. The author of Hebrews seems to think there is something else going on. He says, no, no, no. Abraham, you've got to understand, Abraham actually thought that even if God called him to go through with the, the offering of his only son, he would receive his son back by way of resurrection. That God would not allow his son to stay dead, but would in fact raise him up even there. And it would be a test and, and, and Abraham would have passed it and his son would come back with him. Like he told these men, Hebrews eleven seventeen through 19. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And here it is, verse 19. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. But, I mean, are you tracking with me so far? We have now uh, collected various uh, uh, um, um, connections to the story with Jesus back here with Abraham and Isaac. We have a beloved only son being offered. We're talking about death. Now we're talking about resurrection. All of this is Genesis 22. And we've only really just begun. Genesis 22 verse 6. We read this. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. Now I don't, I don't think you can get a more vivid and stirring picture of what it was maybe like for Jesus as he was walking Calvary Road than this. The Father and Him together. Immediately I thought of, um, there's a text in John 16, 32, where He's looking at His disciples, Jesus is, and He says, guys, you're all, the hour's coming. You're all going to leave me alone. But I'm never alone. My Father is with me. And here you have Abraham and Isaac, the wood on his son's back and the father walking with them, prepared to make this offering. 
You might also think, and commentators point out, connection to John 19.17, where we read that Jesus went out bearing his own cross to the place called Golgotha. He's carrying the wood of the offering on his back. Then Genesis 22, verse 7, Isaac speaks up for the first time in the narrative, My father, behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? To which Abraham responds in verse 8, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them together. Finally, some sense is coming into Isaac, and he's going, this doesn't look good. I'm not liking where this is going here. I'm seeing the fire. I'm seeing the blade. I'm holding the wood. But where's the offering? And Abraham says, don't worry. God will provide. God will provide the lamb, the offering that he needs. With this, we're led to think of God's provision of a lamb. Are we not? And immediately our mind flits forward to uh, when John the Baptist, after kind of catching wind of who Jesus really is, says to his disciples, makes this kind of bold declaration, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Here he is. We found him. God's provision of a Lamb. John two one twenty nine. God indeed would provide, did provide this lamb, only not in Abraham's only son, but in his own, Jesus. But we keep going. Genesis 22, verses 9 through 13. We reach the climax of this whole scene. You guys doing all right? You need to stand up and stretch. Abraham has now readied the altar and tied his son firmly to it. The knife, we're told, in, 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 in a narrative dramatic kind of tension, is raised up over Isaac, his son, in preparation for his slaughter. Abraham's going to go through with it, and then at the last moment, God speaks. His voice cuts through the tension. Abraham, Abraham. Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And, and at that very moment, Abraham lifted up his eyes, verse 13, and looked and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. It's here that we read of um, this ram being offered up instead of his son. Uh, scholars will point to this and say, this is probably the, 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 the first kind of clearest reference to what we now understand as substitutionary atonement in all the Bible. Of course, you can see, you know, that hinted at maybe even in the Garden of Eden as they're covered in skins and other things. But here is this clear language that says this one will die in place of another. Does that sound like something else to you? Sure does to me. But then finally, in verse 14 of Genesis 22, we read. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Now, it's actually with this that we're going to open up a whole new set of connections. Abraham looks and goes, man, I'm going to call this place, the Lord will provide. And then it seems that this influenced a whole new generation of, of people in Israel. The future generation would look at this mount, this place where Abraham offered Isaac and say, man, on this mountain it shall be provided. We are looking for God to provide substitutionary, sacrificial, atonement type stuff on this mountain, this place. Our eyes are here. Well, here's what I want to ask now. Where is here? You guys catch it? You guys know? Where 
is here? Where is this mount that is named the Lord will provide? And all of Israel is now saying on this mountain, the Lord shall provide throughout generations. What is this? Where is this place? Genesis 22. What are we talking about? Well, actually, it was mentioned back up in verse 2 of Genesis 22. I wonder if you noticed. He said, says God, I got a specific place in mind for you, Abraham. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go where? To the land of Moriah. There's a mount in the land of Moriah. And I want you to go there. And I want you to offer up your son there. And then we're going to name it, the Lord shall provide there. Well, what else do we know about Moriah? I'll tell you, it's only mentioned one other place as far as I know in all the Bible. It's amazing. Second Chronicles 3.1. Want to know what they're doing in Second Chronicles 3.1? Building the temple. Let me read it to you. Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. Where? On Mount Moriah. Where the Lord had appeared to David, his father. Now we're going to get there. I thought it said Abraham. There's more that God does. This is what's so amazing about every story. Where the Lord had appeared to David, his father, at the place that David had appointed on the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. You see all that other stuff and a mention of Ornan and Jebusites. And you miss the fact that we're talking about Mount Moriah. The mount on which it shall be provided. And they're now building the temple There, where they will offer up sacrifice after sacrifice. The sacrifice of these sorts of things pictured even back with this ram caught in a thicket. But there's more. There's another detail given there in 2 Chronicles 3.1 that I wanted to show you. Um, And it does have to do with David. The, The... Connection is made from the temple not to Abraham, um, though the author could have done that, but instead to David. Look at it one more time with me. Where the Lord, this place, this Mount Moriah, where the temple is being built, where all these sacrifices and things will be offered, where God will dwell with his people. This place is where the Lord had appeared to not just Abraham now, but David, his father. At the place that David had appointed on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. Well, what in the world is that? For this, we have to take a few steps back. And then I promise we'll be moving forward. But it's amazing. I'll only briefly cover this one. I would encourage um, you to read through First Chronicles 21 if you have the time after the service. And just make note of some of the connections between, you know, uh, Abraham and Isaac there. And then now David and this story that we're going to look at the temple. And then as we'll get to Christ. But here's what's going on in First Chronicles 21. Here's what uh, the uh, text in Second Chronicles 3 1 is referring to when it says David appeared uh, or God appeared to David at this spot where now the temple is going to be built. Here's the story behind that. First Chronicles 21. Let me just fill in some of the, the, the details so you can see it. David says, I want a census. I want to take a census in Israel. And he has ill intent for it. It's coming from a heart of pride. He wants to number his soldiers and get a sense of how big his military strength really is. I just kind of want to see how big, how great we are. I want to get a sense of how much we can accomplish together. Let's take a census. Let me get a bit of this. So in pride, in arrogance, he takes this census and God in judgment strikes the people of Israel. And um, what we... Uh, see what we read about is is that David is kind of given this vision, and it's profound. This it would be absolutely frightening if you were to see something like this. I don't even know what it would be like, but he sees this vision of the angel of the Lord with a sword raised up over the people of Israel, and people are dying because of the king's sin. People are dying. Judgment is coming upon them. And the sword is raised up 
over the people of Israel by this angel of the Lord. And we're told, this is verse 15 of 1 Chronicles 21, that God sent the angel to Jerusalem to destroy it. I mean, to destroy it. But as he was about to destroy it, the Lord saw and he relented from the calamity. And he said to the angel who was working destruction, it is enough. Now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. Here's our detail. The threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. Who's this Ornan guy? I don't know. But the angel is standing by this threshing floor. And here's what God does. He says, all right, I want to stop the judgment. Put the sword away. And he says, David, here's what I want you to do. Build an altar on that threshing floor and offer burnt offerings to me. And then the last detail is that the angel sheathes its sword. The judgment passes. And so then here we have, you know, um, later now, God with Solomon saying, in that place, I want you to build the temple. There where the altar was raised, where we talked about the, 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 the blade of the angel being sheathed. That's where I want to, what is it? I mean, let me, let me, let me think about this with me. Back with Abraham and Isaac, what was it? But a blade raised up over his son, about to drop upon uh, the victim there. And yet God calls it off and instead provides a substitute. And in that very same place, really the very same thing happens. Judgment is coming. A blade raised up over the people of Israel this time. Not just Isaac. To destroy. And yet God sees and in mercy calls that blade off. Brings in a substitute for it to fall upon. And then God says, now here's what I want to do. In that same place where we did this with Abraham and Isaac. Where we did it with David and Israel. I want to do it day after day after day after day. For year after year after year with the people of Israel in the temple. Where we're going to bring in offerings. And that blade, that knife is going to fall not on the people that deserve it for their sin. But on a substitute. And it's going to happen day by day by day by day. Until the one to whom it all has been pointing arrives. The sacrifice of all sacrifices. The Obedience of all obediences. Jesus himself lays his life down for us. This is why Jesus, when he rolls on the scene, says these crazy things. Like uh, he's walking by the temple and he says, destroy this temple and in three days I'm going to raise it up. Everyone looks at him and goes, are you kidding me? It took us forever to build this temple. You think you're going to do that in three days? And then John lets us in on the clue. He was talking about the temple of his body. That he is the presence of God and he is all that the temple stood for. He will be the substitutionary atonement, the blade that was called off of Isaac and called off of Israel. Not just there with David, but again and again and again through the years of temple sacrifice will finally land crushing judgment upon him. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What is that? That is the knife sinking in to him instead of you and instead of me. So Jesus gets on the scene and he says this whole string of connections, it's all been pointing, uh, preparing for me and what I've come here to do. The whole stuff with Isaac, the obedience of Abraham, the issues with David and Israel, the temple, to me. So in other words, it is by way of his perfect and vicarious obedience in both his life and death that we enjoy God's rich and eternal Blessing. So when we return to our initial consideration, some of those questions I had at the very beginning about Abraham's obedience and then Isaac's blessing flowing from it. I think one commentator's words uh, are well put here. The obedience of Christ accomplished more than Abraham's could ever have done. 
By his passion and triumph, he has won the right and power to beat back the hostile cosmic forces and ensure for his people participation in his victory. But did you hear that? The obedience of Christ accomplished more than that of Abraham ever could have done. The point of Genesis 26 is not about Abraham's obedience. It's about Christ's on our behalf and the blessing that comes to us because of it. This is why Paul would state in Romans 5.19, by the one man's, not Abraham's, by the one man's, Jesus' obedience, the many, you and I, will be made righteous. We look at the blessing coming to Isaac because of Abraham. Listen, it's not because of Abraham's faith or his obedience. It's not because of his uh, grandma's obedience. It's not because of his own obedience. It's not because of anyone's obedience, but because of Jesus's. By one man's obedience, the many, you and I included, will be made, will be counted righteous. Right standing, salvation, blessing comes to us because of him. All of that there in Genesis 26. Now, you're sitting here going, okay, so what does that have to do with me? Practical implications for me. Why, Nick, take us through all of these different things. I, I get it, but I want to see where this touches my life, what that means. I got two things. We could have done a lot with this, but I got two in particular that I wanted to bring to you, and they really flow out of those initial two questions I was asking. The first, if you remember, the troubling one that I have was one of them is um, do the scriptures give a unified answer? Do the scriptures give a unified answer to the question, how can a man get on the right side with God? How can we be saved? How, is God fumbling about trying to figure his way through this? Or is there one coherent answer in all the Bible? The answer I hope you can see now is yes. And so implication number one would be this. We can trust our Bibles. The book in your lap is the very word of God. God is not stumbling his way through. He's not speaking out of both sides of his mouth, hoping we don't notice. He has given one answer from beginning to end to man's greatest, most pressing problem. And that answer is, Jesus and the gospel and the cross. Before Christ, he's preparing for and foreshadowing Jesus and the gospel. With the arrival of Christ, he's unveiling and accomplishing this redemptive work. And after the ascension of Christ and the outpouring of his spirit, he's now busy applying and expanding the kingdom of his grace. It's all been about him and this one solution in Jesus. There is one answer. And therefore, the scriptures, amazingly, and this is what I want you to consider, can be trusted like no other book. I, I wonder, and one of the reasons why I spend some of the time that I do in doing some of these uh, intertextual exegetical stuff in the scriptures that some of you may find boring, others of you may find intriguing. One of the reasons why I do some of this is so I could get to a point like this and say, listen, <laughs> one of the greatest apologetics or defenses for why the, the Bible, we can trust that it is in fact the very word of God, the inspired, infallible, inerrant word of God, is it's Surprising, profound, unmistakable, unbelievable unity. When you think of making a case for, you know, a guy on the street is saying, well, you, you Christians, why do you believe that old book? You know, you think of trying to make a case. What do you think of? A lot of times we think of manuscript evidence. We might think of, oh, uh, uh, I don't know, archaeology uh, and some of the corroborating stuff that we've seen, we might think of extra-biblical ancient historians and how they validated that Jesus was a person and all these other things. We might go to these places, but honestly, one of the things that over the years has become the most amazing to me and the most convincing is the unity of the story. 
But you might not see why that's so amazing until, I, I, until we step back and realize how the Bible was in fact composed. See, unity by one person writing, okay, well, that's not that big of a deal. You know, well, I, I suppose that's hard. I mean, I can even like, man, did I have one train of thought? You know, we get off on all these little things. Unity even for one person in one moment of time might actually be quite a miracle. But I'm telling you, when you think about how the scriptures were written, and then you see all of these connections, and it's all pointing to Jesus and summed up in him, and the one story that it's ultimately telling, you got to go, this is amazing. The fact that somewhere around 40 different authors, now think with me on this, 40 different authors from all manner of different backgrounds, they got different vocations, different ethnicities, different socioeconomic statuses, different religious upbringings. They're writing in three different languages on three different continents. You using many different literary styles, responding to many different historical circumstances through the course of over 1,400 years. Some of these guys over 1,400 years apart. The fact that there is still this profound unity, this underlying unity to the whole thing, weaving it all together. I mean, that's one of the sweetest, one of the greatest cases we can make for the divine inspiration of this book, that what it says is in fact from God. Jesus really is the answer to the human dilemma, and it's worth seeing him on every page of the scripture if God says, I want you to see him there. Now, your unbelieving friends might not take the time to see some of these things with you, and they might not grant you that, but man, it has strengthened my faith. Because I'll tell you something, we can't even, right, in our country today get two politicians right here, one place, one time, one issue to agree, right? You with me on that? You watch the news? And yet here you have 40 authors, 1,400 years of time, Oh man, or a Jew, some Gentile coming to all saying Jesus is it at the end of the day. I'm telling you, what that indicates for us is that though these words have come to us from many hearts and many minds, they have ultimately come to us from one heart and one mind above them all, namely God's. I think Jesus himself says it best when he's trying to show them. The point of all scripture, he says, listen, you, you, you Pharisees, you guys, you search the scriptures because in them you think you're going to have life. But it is them that speak of what me. And he's not talking about New Testament. New Testament wasn't written. He's talking about Old Testament. And then the new that flows out from it. The scriptures were all about me. And in me you have life. I am the unifying factor to it all. I am the point of the story. The gospel of the cross has always been God's one answer. We can trust every word in this book. Implication number two, we can rest in Jesus. We can rest in Jesus. And this really uh, recalls the, the other question that I had which I know I've touched on, but I want to sit in this a little bit more. How do we get saved? Is it by Abraham's works? Is it by my own works? Is it by my grandma's works? No, we see clearly it. all of this has been kind of pointing us, directing us to Jesus' works. How does the, 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 the blade, the sword of, of God's judgment that called off of us, How we need a substitute. Where is that found? Jesus, how does the blessing flow to us? Jesus, I just want to sit on that for a moment and call us into the rest of Christ, right? You heavy laden, you burdened, come to me. You will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. I take that for you. You can rest here because he obeyed the commands, the statutes, the laws. Blessing flows to us freely by grace. I'm telling you, if we really believe this, if we really got this, that all of my sin was placed on his back and he took it. He took it. He took the knife. And all of his righteousness, perfect, spotless, pure, complete, Imputed to my account. If we really got that. 
If you came in here feeling guilty, what you did last night or last week, if you came in here with that shame just clinging to you, even though you're smiling because it's church, just feel yuck. If you came in here with the anxiety, the, the, the depression, the condemnation that's associated with that sort of stuff, we get this, we let this settle in. That because of his obedience, blessing comes to me. That stuff starts to lift. Even now, that's my prayer. Is that we see God has made the provision for us. That we are in fact clean. We are in fact loved. We are in fact righteous. We are in God's uh, favor because of Jesus. I, I don't know if you've ever struggled with assurance. The assurance of your salvation and things. I'm almost done. This is the last thing I want to share with you. I don't know if you've ever struggled with the assurance of, of salvation, but I have. I have uh, a lot, uh, especially in the early years of my Christian walk. It was like, and there would be months that would go by where I would just be up through the night wrestling with, God, do you love me or not? And on my good days, I would feel like he was smiling. On my bad days or when I saw my sin, I felt like it was over. And I was so scared I was going to make a wrong move. There was no rest. There was no blessing. There was no peace. There was just this gnawing kind of sense of my own inadequacy and, 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 and failure and fear. In the up and down kind of nature of it all. Well, when I was in the middle of that place, uh, someone recommended that I check out a book written by um, the, the the author who's most well known for writing Pilgrim's Progress, J, uh, John Bunyan. Uh, he wrote another uh, book, a great uh, book, called Grace Abounding. And in it, He's talking about his own struggles with this issue of assurance and feeling like, man, how could God accept me? And what if I blow it? And I want to be saved. I want to be on God's right side, but I keep feeling like I'm not. And uh, he's talking about the ups and downs of it all. And then finally light. I'll never forget when I came to it in the book. Light just breaks through for him and it helped light break through for me as well. Somewhere around the middle of the book. This is what we read. One day, as I was passing into the field with some dashes on my conscience, fearing yet that all was not right, suddenly this sentence fell upon my soul. Hear this. Your righteousness is in heaven. I thought I saw with the eyes of my soul Jesus Christ at God's right hand. There was my righteousness. Wherever I was or whatever I was doing, God could not say of me that I lacked his righteousness, for that was ever before him. Moreover, I saw that it was not my good frame of heart that made my righteousness better, nor yet my bad frame that made my righteousness worse. For my righteousness was Jesus Christ himself, the same yesterday and today and forever. Now did my chains fall off my legs indeed. I was loosed from my afflictions and irons. My temptations also fled away. You gotta love how these older guys talk. And I went home rejoicing for the grace and and love of God. He said, man, I thought it was all in me and it would go up and down with me, but those were just chains and they fell off when I realized that you are my righteousness and you have risen and you are now at the right hand of the Father living to make intercession for me, saying, look, the blade that that man deserved pierced my hands. Look, the righteous obedience that I have fulfilled counts for him. And it's, it's secure, it's stable. Jesus rose never to die again, which means if you are in Him, the blessing is yours eternally, forever. And you're not going up and down between God's smile and God's frown. He loves you. All that was happening with Abraham, all that was happening with David, all that was happening with the temple was to get to this moment where God could say, Jesus is the answer. He is your righteousness because of His obedience, your blessing, your salvation, freely, one man's obedience, the many made righteous. 
John Bunyan grounds this word that came to him in personal revelation there, your righteousness is in heaven. In 1 Corinthians 1.30 in particular, where Paul writes this, because of God, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. God has brought you into his son and he's made his son your righteousness. What that means is you can rest. I'll just end with a call. I don't know where everybody's at all the time. Listen, if you want this rest, Jesus gives the answer when he calls all you burdened, heavy laden, weary, come to me. The call at this point in our service is simply to come to Christ and embrace what he has done. Not make resolutions to get better and cover your past failures and change for the future. You can't do it. On the mountain, the Lord will provide what we can't do for ourselves. And he has provided it in Jesus. Come and embrace the scriptures. One answer to man's biggest problem. Let's pray. Jesus, we rejoice that it is your obedience that's been credited to our account. Your perfect life, your sacrificial death. Lord, it is true on that mountain you have provided. You showed us the way to your great provision in Jesus. Jesus, we embrace you afresh today, some perhaps for the first time. So we're sorry that we're always trying to clean ourselves up. We just add more sin to sin. (laughs) We do away with it all and we receive the grace that comes to us, the blessing we have in you. In Jesus' name, amen.